I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel according to Matthew. I'd like to read to you uh, the narrative of the birth of Christ from chapter 1, verse 18. Reading a little longer than usual, we'll, we'll uh, read down to 2.18. <clears throat> you from uh, Gospel of according to Matthew chapter 1 verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph before they came together she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph her husband being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, Bring back word to me, that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star, which they had seen in the east, went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. 
Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, all that the prophets had spoken has come to pass according to your power and will. And so it is that though the kings of the earth had taken their stand against the Lord and against his anointed, yet you have caused his reign to prosper and prevail May he so continue his blessed reign. May the work that he is uh, engaged in in us be brought more and more to perfection, even as we consider again the king whom you have appointed us. May he be to us our uh, ruler, uh, the one who is able to subdue all his and our enemies, ruling and defending us for your name's sake, in whom we pray. Amen. One of the most surprising things, I think, to first-time readers of the New Testament is that the story of Jesus is not merely told once or twice or even three times, but four times. These Gospels that we have, according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why are there four Gospels in the New Testament? I mean, why not just tell the story once? You know, when we read of the Kings and read again in the Chronicles, we say, you know, you, you could have saved some time by just combining most of this together. Uh, What is it that we have here with four accounts of Jesus? Well, uh, we could give many reasons. We could say, for example, that the great history on which our salvation rests is so rich and certainly so vitally important to the world as well as to everyone who believes it, that we need to have it given to us in as many different witnesses and as many different ways and from various perspectives. I mean, we have the wonderful privilege now of seeing Jesus through various different eyes, not to mention, of course, the writers of various letters. Well, over the centuries, numerous writers have attempted to harmonize the Gospels into a single story. In fact, one of the earliest of these was done by the church father Tatian in the second century, His celebrated work, which had very wide reading, by the way, was called the Diatessaron, meaning through the four, where it weaves together these four accounts into a single narrative. By the way, if you look at the church for hundreds of years after the coming of Christ, there are no more Gospels than four. There are four, and there are only four. We have only ever had four. All the Gnostic Gospels and everything came later, just to point that out to you. Well... Uh, you probably don't have the Diatessaron on your shelf. Maybe you do have a Harmony of the Gospels somewhere, which is based on that ancient work. But you might have Catherine Voss's Children's Story Bible, perhaps, on your shelf, which does the same thing, a delightful work that we ourselves read and have benefited from, an approach that has its advantages to have one story from beginning to end. But if it has advantages... What does that approach lose? What do we lose if we put it all together? Something also that we recognize, for example, I quoted Calvin this morning. Calvin has 
his commentary on Matthew, Mark, and Luke all together. What is lost by such an approach? Have you ever thought of that? Each gospel is a unique portrait of Jesus. And each gospel writer has a particular story to tell with certain themes and emphases, merging them all together into one obscures each of those writers' unique perspective, and we risk supremely missing what the Holy Spirit's message to us is in that particular text uh, to explain. As John pointed out, if all the things that Jesus did were written down, the world itself could not contain the books. Each of these four readers were, writers were extremely selective, writing certain things in a certain way to teach you certain things that you might otherwise not know or miss. And over the next four weeks, we are going to consider four different perspectives on Christ's coming to see what each one of them has to teach us. We start with the Gospel according to Matthew. From the earliest days of the church and for centuries thereafter, Matthew was simply the most quoted book in the Bible by the church's writers. To many people now as then, I suppose, this is the most important book ever written in the book of books. According to tradition, it is the first gospel. Matthew's great emphasis is Christ the King. And from the very first verse of this book, it tells us about Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And he begins by giving a royal lineage, tracing his family nine, not only back to David, the greatest of the Jewish kings and the one to whom the promises were made, but even to Abraham, that one in whom all the nations of the earth were promised to be blessed. Jesus fulfills both of those covenants, by the way, the one, the, the king and the one through the seed through whom the families of the whole earth would be blessed. And so this book, which begins with presenting to us Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, son of Abraham, it ends with a commission to go and make disciples of all nations, for Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And so we are to go and make disciples of all nations. Well, time and time again, Matthew emphasizes the royal prerogatives of Jesus and his royal titles as well. Uh, for example, all four Gospels, of course, record the coming of Jesus into Jerusalem, the people crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Only Matthew also tells us that they sang, Hosanna to the Son of David a Jewish messianic title for their king. And so Jesus is presented in Matthew supremely as the king of his kingdom. And this makes the Gothic Gospel of Matthew also particularly relevant for us today in our secular anti-authoritarian age. We need again to hear about this ruler of the nations, this one that is the king of kings, the lord of lords, the ruler over the princes of the earth, before whom every knee will bow. All authority on heaven and earth is his.
Many have pointed out that uh, Matthew 1, verse 21 here, which I read to you, also is a good introduction to the book. She will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus, I know this is really confusing. Jesus is from Yeshua, which is the shortened form of the word Yehoshua or Joshua, right? Yehoshua, uh, Jehovah saves. Yeho, first two syllables of Jehovah in Hebrew. Shua, uh, Shua Yeshua is, uh, he saves. So the name Jesus is significant because it means Jehovah saves, and Jesus is presented right from the beginning as Jehovah coming to save his people. Emmanuel, God with us. God become man to save us from our sins. And it is the same um, uh, all throughout, by the way. Well, a couple more things about Matthew, distinctive to Matthew. It's the most Jewish book of the four. He doesn't bother to explain Hebrew words or Hebrew customs, as the other writers do. Uh, it, It is the most Jewish, although at the same time, It has a very strong emphasis, Matthew 12, that in his name, the Gentiles will trust. This book is not just good news for Jews. Oh, no, it's good news for the world, as this Jesus, the son of David, is also the son of Abraham, through whom all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So Matthew shows us how Jesus fulfills all that was written about this promised king. Matthew makes more references to those Hebrew scriptures than any of the other gospel writers. As a matter of fact, there are at least 40 direct quotations from the Old Testament in the book of Matthew. Ten of them are introduced with words such as, all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, saying, and so I think it's very appropriate that this book is where it is, is the first book of the New Testament. It, it is the, the bridge, truly, that links the old and all that was promised with the new and all that is fulfilled in the coming King of Jesus. It's also been uh, pointed out that Matthew is writing especially for Jews. Matthew records more of Jesus' interaction with Jewish authorities, with the council, other writers, And so he is the most Jewish of the floor. But Matthew wants us to know that he has, well, Matthew records the strongest indictments of Jewish unbelief. It says at the beginning that he shall save his people from their sins. What does it mean? Who are his people? I mean, you know, reading many books in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, we might just assume reading up to this point that his people would mean the Jewish nation. Well, Matthew 8 challenges that. For instance, Jesus declares, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus has not just come to save his people, the Jews. It's his people at all the earth who believe in him. But those of his people who do not and have not believed in him, which were many, Matthew points out, they will be cut off. And so there's a very strong emphasis that Christ is the Savior of the world, but only the remnant of his own people shall be saved. Well, these themes I'm giving to you in the Gospel of Matthew are 
all important as we are introduced to Jesus and his coming in the passage that I read to you, which I'd like to cover briefly in just three points that Jesus is presented to us as the Son of God, the Son of David, and the Son of Abraham. Let's consider those three. First, the Son of God. He's presented to us as the Son of God. Mary is a virgin. And some people have pointed out, rightly, that in the passage here quoted to us from Isaiah the prophet, the Hebrew word translated virgin there and here in English is Alma, which can also mean a young woman of marriageable age, not necessarily an actual virgin. Perhaps, many people say, we are to understand that Mary was just a young woman and not a virgin, since we know that virgins don't give birth. Well, I hope that the context makes things very clear. Verse 18, chapter 1, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And that is certainly the point of this, not uh, any kind of linguistic uh, acrobatic job to get around some human parentage. Oh no, the whole point is that Jesus, this one who is to be born, is not an ordinary man, that he has God as his father. So that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man in this one person. And although Isaiah's Hebrew word can sometimes mean a young woman in her father's home, it's true. Uh, Matthew uses the Greek word parthenos, which only means virgin, by the way. Other people have said, well, linguistics or not, this was just a superstitious and unscientific age. We know better. Uh, there was a day in which the carolers were singing in the courtyard Christmas carols, and C.S. Lewis's colleague leaned over and said to him, isn't it good that we know so much better than they did? Lewis asked, what do you mean? Well, isn't it good to know that, that virgins don't have babies? Lewis looked at him incredulously and said, don't you think they knew that? That's the whole point. Joseph was going to put away his wife, not because he didn't know where babies come from, but because he knew perfectly well. And don't you think that Joseph understands what virgin means in context? That man knew a lot more about the meaning of the word virgin than thousands of critical linguists today. Well, um, how can this be since I do not know a man, he asked elsewhere. Uh, he did not know her till she brought forth her firstborn son. There's no question here what's going on. There's no question what kind of virgin she is, either to Joseph or to anyone else. These people are no more superstitious than people today. But enough of this. The point is clear. The point in introducing him this way is that we should know, not only by prophecy, but actually in his conception, this one who is coming forth is God and man. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And so Matthew uh, selects these, uh, these events, joins them together with these certain prophecies so that we will know that the incarnation of the Son of God is what follows. This is the threshold of the New Testament. This is critically important because it is Jehovah that saves. That's what his name means, Jehovah saves. This is not about some person coming. This is not about man's desire or effort. God needs to save us. And page one says, God has come to do exactly that. You shall call his name Jesus. 
He will save his people from their sins. That is Jehovah. Now, if anyone finds the virgin birth offensive or impossible to believe, frankly, there's no point in going past page one. If somebody's faith staggers at a virgin birth, what is it going to make at the numerous miracles or when the Lord says that he can forgive sins? The people were staggered. They say, well, who can forgive sins but God alone? Exactly. What are you going to make of it when he says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father except through him? What are you going to make when he is going to be raised on the third day and appointed as judge of all the earth? Okay, Matthew wants you to know with strong emphasis, page one, Jesus is the Son of God, nothing less. He also wants to be very clear and introduce him to you also as the Son of David. Matthew, more than any of the other gospel writers, as I mentioned, is, in, is writing about the king and his kingdom. The kingdom comes up again and again, explanations of the kingdom, parables of the kingdom, what it means that he is the king, what his kingdom is like, and so forth. And Matthew also wants us to know that this king of the Jews is thoroughly rejected by the pretended wicked Jewish rulers. Herod is not the true king. Jesus is. And by the way, we know a great deal about Herod from history, Josephus and elsewhere, and everything we know about history is completely consistent here with what we read about his character. People have said, you know, no other historian records that uh, Herod killed these babies in the district of Bethlehem. You say, well, you don't understand how many people he killed, right? I mean, this is very small potatoes. This is just change on the dollar uh, compared to the kind of murders that this guy had committed. Uh, Herod was a Roman appointee, and he was always vulnerable to the claims of the true Davidic king that was coming. There was a messianic fever at the time, as Daniel's years had now elapsed, as we just read. Herod was thoroughly, genuinely paranoid by the end of his life. I mean, he had two of his own sons executed for fear that they would be planning a coup to take over while he was still alive. He had another son executed this very year because he was too eager to proclaim himself king in the palace of his father in succession to his dad. I mean, even Caesar Augustus said, it's better to be Herod's pig than to be his son. I mean, he treats them better. They live longer, right? So, uh, you know, uh, the fact that nobody records him killing a few boys and little boys in Bethlehem, I mean, that's nothing, right? <sighs> These magi, they come from the east. Uh, by the way, wise men from the east, does that sound familiar to you at all? As we've just been reading through the book of the prophet Daniel, Daniel, who was the head of what? Originally appointed head of the wise men from the east, exactly, uh, who prophesies not only of the, the coming Messiah and when his kingdom is going to come is the fourth kingdom, but even, the, even to the year, right? Okay, so these magi come from the east, these wise men from the east, asking about the king of the Jews. And Herod, the pretender king, is greatly troubled. He's filled with rage. And whenever he got mad, uh, he was very careless of the lives of others. All Jerusalem, therefore, is troubled with him. Herod is eager to find out about this Jesus, not to worship him, as he says, but to destroy him so he could preserve his own sovereignty. That's the way he rolls. So upon hearing the words of these oriental wise men, the king calls together the scribes, the chief priests, to find out where this Jesus was to be born. 
Uh, just, just down the road in Jerusalem, they answer. Well, off go the wise men. Apparently nobody else can be troubled to go and take a look. J.C. Ryle comments, we might have thought that the scribes and Pharisees would have been the first to hasten to Bethlehem, just right down the road, city of David, right? uh, uh, the king, on the lightest rumor that the Savior was born, but it is not so. No, a few unknown strangers from a distant land rejoice at his birth. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. And what a mournful picture this is of human nature. The theologians, knowledgeable as they were, couldn't be bothered to travel even a few miles to Bethlehem that, he might, uh, that they might find out if there was some claim to truth here. All right. So we see that he is born the king. And just like David, his father, right from the beginning, he's being persecuted by the other pretended king until it is time for his kingdom to come. He's given the royal genealogy. He's introduced as the Messiah, the son of David. He's uh, given this uh, fulfillment of prophecy that he's born in Bethlehem to fulfill the word of the prophet and so forth. And so in all these ways, we are reminded that we are dealing with a king of a kingdom. Third, and finally, he is presented to us as the son of Abraham. He's not only the son of God, he's not only the son of David, he's also the son of Abraham. Well, of course he is, he's a Jew. No, 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 I, what I mean is, when uh, this word is, uh, this, this name is traced back to Abraham, we are reminded that not only was there a covenant with David promising a king, but there was a covenant with Abraham promising that in him and his seed, all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth should be blessed. And that this is the fulfillment of that. Not only is he king of the Jews, he has come to rule the world. Now this word magi that many of you have is originally the Persian word for members of the Persian priestly class, uh, magoi, think it is. Um, later, it refers to all the wise men and court officials of the kingdoms in Asia. Uh, these would include astrologers and magicians in some cases, as well as cabinet officials, ambassadors, anybody in an ancient royal court. So it doesn't have to be wise men, doesn't uh, have to be these uh, magic people or anything like that. It's also just a title for royal officials uh, people who counseled the king and who would serve as ambassadors or secretaries of state. Okay, so, so these men come from the east. And once again, let me point out that critical scholars go over this and they miss the whole point. They say, well, obviously this is just a pious legend. I mean, apart from the star, there's, uh, what, 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 do we, what do we have here from history? Um, well, there's nothing from history, at least, that seems at all improbable, both the Ancient historians Suetonius and Dio Cassius record that Nero was visited by Eastern Magi, same word, in AD 66 for other reasons. As I told you earlier, Daniel was with um, uh, many years, was, was chief of the wise men in Babylon, and to Daniel was revealed the most full timetable of the coming of the Messiah, and the various kingdoms, and the number of years, and all these things. So it's very likely that this burning hope was kept alive, again, written in their language in Aramaic. So they come seeking the king of the Jews. 
They, they, they had some prior knowledge about what was dawning upon the world. And it fits perfectly with all that we expect them to know reading the book of Daniel as we have done. Well, the fact that these Gentile ambassadors, wise men, uh, court officials are, are coming to worship and his own people can't even be bothered to go down the road and check whether they're going to find anything, Matthew is preparing his readers for the fact that the gospel is going to the Gentiles, that the Gentile world is going to have a tremendous reception of Jesus. And the Jews, so long God's favored nation, are going to become a minority in the people of God. Matthew begins with Gentiles coming to worship Christ, and it ends with Christ's command to take the gospel to all nations in the Gentile world. There's more that I could tell you from the genealogy about how he weaves in various Gentile references, but, uh, but this is the point. Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's the King of all the earth. And in this remarkable story, which God loves to do things like this, uh, events just like this, here are these wise men showing up in the palace. Who are these people? Completely unexpected in Jerusalem. These, they're the wrong religion. They're Gentiles. They're the wrong race. They're from the East. What are you doing here? We're here to worship the one born king of the Jews. Right from the beginning, Matthew wants us to know, Gentiles are coming to the brightness of his rising to worship before the Jewish Messiah, even though most of his own people seem to be indifferent or self-interested, if not actively hostile to Jesus. They won't even be bothered to travel a few miles to Bethlehem to see for themselves. But if the word about Jesus is true, then the nations of the earth are going to believe in heart and mind and you must act. You must come and worship. This is the Messiah, the living God in the flesh, the King of kings and the judge of all men, the light of the world, the Savior of mankind. No one comes to the Father but by Him. And if surely, if that is believed, if all the earth must worship before Him, this must become the great animating and controlling and determining conviction of your life. These Jewish scribes who knew so much more than the wise men all their knowledge did them no good. They knew where he was going to be born in, in, in Bethlehem. They couldn't be troubled to act on it. Do you have the faith of the wise men, the conviction, the readiness to believe and act, given to what you know? These unnamed wise men, they offer their worship to the newborn King of Kings, beautifully showing us the faith and love and loyalty that the nations of the earth would be bringing the Messiah. So... One more point about this. They believed in Christ, you see, when they had not seen him at all. They believed in Christ when the scribes and the Pharisees remained unbelieving about him. They, they believed in Jesus when they saw him as this little baby on Mary's knee. And they worshipped him as a king. This was the crowning point of their faith. They had no uh, great demonstration of Christ's miracles. They did not hear his teaching to persuade them. They beheld no apparent signs of his divinity or greatness to overawe them. There was nothing but a helpless infant, weak, needing a mother's care like any one of us. And when they came to him, they fell down and they worshiped the Savior of the world. Have we not a thousand more evidences than these wise men? to make us believe that Jesus is the Christ? Where is our faith? Here then the third point, that Jesus 
is the son of Abraham, the one in whom all the nations of the earth are destined to be blessed. And the Gentiles are already coming to worship the King of Kings right from the very beginning of his birth. How unlikely that they, of all people, should be the one to find him in Bethlehem. That they should come to know at such a distance, that they should come to know that, that he is the king of the Jews indeed. But they did. Well, what we have in this uh, little introduction to Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew is the explanation of the world as it is. Why Matthew is giving here a philosophy of history. Here's this community of people, the Jews, who had centuries of longing for the Messiah, apparently. And yet when he came, he is greeted with dismissive contempt. Meanwhile, the most unlikely people from the ends of the earth are ready to acknowledge him as earth's king and God's son. The story of the gospel begins with such paradoxes. It enters a world of human sin and violence, violence that even rages against the prince of life. And it continues in this vein all throughout the book, for that was the world into which the Savior of mankind came. Men are evil and need to be rescued from the evil, so it was necessary that God become man and live and die in the place of sinful men. And so we are presented a great salvation from the beginning, something that never could have been even anticipated, much, much less achieved by us. The work of Almighty God becoming man, taking the kingship of the world in himself, fulfilling the promise of Abraham in himself, reminding us of the, stewart, the stubborn unbelief of so many of Matthew's fellow Jews, he is promising great things to the world to come in Jesus. And that history has proven to be timeless. As many as rejected the Son of God, it's true, from the people of his birth, so many more have come from the east and the west and sat down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, bowed at the feet of Jesus, given him their hearts, hailing him, Son of God, Son of David, Son of Abraham. This is Matthew's presentation of the coming of the King. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, may this glorious King once again ride on in majesty, and we sing Hosanna to the Son of David. Save, O great King. May that star again rise in our hearts and lead us that we might seek and that we might find Him who is king of the Jews, ruler of the nations, the prince over the rulers of the earth.